Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Neil Almond. Hello. And Lloyd Williams-Jones. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like confidence-weighted multiple-choice questions? But first, I'd like to take a second to tell you about the Discord server um, that we've set up for those of you who listen to the podcast. A link can be found as part of the show description. And really, it's a place for members of the Tadabe family to chat about all things that we hold dear, you know, as well as supporting each other in our continued professional development. Links have a seven day limit, um, but I'll share them regularly under episodes and over at thinkingdeeply.info. So Lloyd, what are confidence weighted multiple choice questions? Okay, so confidence-weighted multiple-choice questions are a pedagogical device, I would say, that teachers can deploy to as a check for understanding. It's a really useful tool to be able to very quickly, efficiently assess um, what understanding is going on in your room and also potentially what misconceptions are present in the room um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the details because I'm sure we'll unpack it um, as we go along but I would say on on the whole that's what they do and I think most people listening will be pretty familiar with multiple choice questions What's the difference between a confidence with a multiple choice question and, uh, and a regular multiple choice question? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So where, but where we normally would have a, uh, a multiple choice question um, with you know, some really strong distractors that are there to uh, probe that thinking or pick up on misconceptions, the confidence weighted element is this uh, is tapping into the metacognitive process of uh, answering questions, getting children to engage um, uh, somewhat with the self-reporting uh, element to, um, to to answering questions. So thinking about thinking um, and where they where they are with their understanding of the particular question or, or thing that's being being assessed. So they would then. Um, give some sort of rating, some sort of gauge on how confident they are that they are right or that they are wrong. Um, and and as, as, as I, again, as, we, as we'll go into everything in between. Um, but, it, but again, it depends on the structure of the confidence-weighted question uh, that you, you deploy. So um, this is probably something that I haven't seen a lot written about it. I know um, Harry Fletcherwood does a lot of work around uh, uh, um, multiple choice questions being hinge questions, important questions from you know the work of William. Uh, but in terms of the confidence rated stuff, I know Colin Foster has been involved in the development of, of some research around this, but it's, uh, it's a fascinating area. So I'm really looking forward to discussing today about uh, some of the potential gains and maybe pitfalls of, of, uh, of rolling it out. Nice. Very well put, Lloyd. Does anyone else want to jump in on what they are, because I know that we're trying to describe, you know, I will definitely put a picture of what I imagine a confidence with a multiple choice question to look like at about three minutes past nine on Saturday morning. But I also, can, is there anything else anyone would add in terms of what they are? Can I clarify then? Um, it, I'd, write, I'd be right in thinking that confidence weighted multiple choice questions are something slightly different to the idea of having a mere multiple choice question and then assigning a confidence rating to your answer. There's something specific in how you might score an answer, for example, that makes them slightly different to a mere multiple choice question with an attached um, element of confidence. Would I be right in thinking that? Yeah, so there's a, an important uh, point to make that you could, you can, there, yeah, there's that, underlying relationship between answers that that is exposed via the weighted element and i think that is an important thing to 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 focus on when when we get into discussion uh we, that we pick up that, I mean, as we will 
um, pick up on that side of it because that is the element that that sort of dynamic and that mechanism within the question that shifts it again. So we, I, I guess we could look at it like you said in three three dimensions. The first one, multiple choice questions, then multiple choice questions with some sort of self-reporting, then multiple choice questions that have a weighting that then affects a relationship or a dynamic between your answers. And I think yeah, it's important. It definitely, Chris, that's important to 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 point out. So a key aspect of how these questions are set up, you'd say, is the fact that you can, in, in, in a sense, hedge your bets in certain circumstances and say, actually, I think it's one of these two options, possibly more this one than this one. And then the kind of score, as it were, that you will get from that will depend on um, yeah, how, the extent to which you hedged your bets and, of course, the extent to which you, you got it right. Um, yeah, that's, uh, as you can tell from me asking questions rather than giving definitive statements on this, this is not an area that I'm particularly conversant with. I'm I'm in the conversation to hopefully ask some provocative questions. <laughs> I think, I, yeah, that, that, it's been a while since I read any of the papers, but that was one of the studies, wasn't it, where they had multiple choice questions on their own, multiple choice questions, and then a separate report on confidence, and then the confidence weighted multiple choice questions that we use were it's essentially a triangle where each of the vertices is one of the answers. And in, in the study or in the studies that have taken place, you have various points on each of the sides and how far away you are from an answer indicates how certain you are that that answer is, is the correct answer. And that's the way we use them in school. You've essentially got a triangle with three mm. possible answers and pupils if they select right on an answer on one of the on one of the vertices then they're 100 certain this is the right answer and if they go in between then they are suggesting they're not 100 certain standards like that they'd normally be in the center of the triangle uh, just a, a don't know uh, answer so if children were really um had no idea there was the, the option to show that that is your answer that you just didn't know but then interestingly um i'm sure we'll discuss this a bit later on in another paper that i found um they discussed the merits of whether actually if that's a a good thing to have because if a child looks at the question and then sees that don't know box then immediately they'll just they don't think that they know it they'll just go to the safety of the don't know whereas actually before they actually try and you know, search their schema for what they think might be a plausible answer they just skip to that don't know and that can then kind of switch them off i mean from my understanding why they why they came about was and lloyd touched on this the metacognitive process that this provides versus a standard multiple choice so what i they've found i believe what they were trying to demonstrate was that you're more likely to think why something is not the right answer thus retrieving more information from your um, schema on whatever the subject is and so by doing that you're obviously boosting learning having to think whether oh I think it might be that one I think it might be that one so there's just that ever so slightly deeper schema search um, compared to the confidence weighted multiple choice to your standard i think it was the work by little in 2011 who found that only about 30 percent of um regular multiple choice test takers would engage in a strategy of like well i know it's not this one because i know it's not this one because so therefore it must be that one whereas 70 percent would just say well i either know it or i don't and it's that added benefit of that, that kind of metacognitive well it's not this one because is what the researchers hypothesize is the added bonus that you get from using confidence weighted multiple choice questions as described um, by kieran where the um, you have a triangle and at the each corner each versus there is a possible answer and then there's various dots around the triangle to let you know how confident you feel in each answer. Yeah, and it was interesting that I think um, a paper thing that you suggested to me, either Kieran or Neil, um, Spark, Bjork and Bjork, 2016, which is my only engagement with this subject on a research level at all. Um, 
it talked about, as you were saying earlier, this difference between saying, here's the question with a separate multiple choice, sorry, with a separate confidence weighting. Here's the question where it's built in in this scored sense. And from this, you can see that it isn't just the confidence rating. It isn't purely the that element of the that metacognitive element that is effective. It's like you say, Neil, it's this idea of saying, no, you, you have to compare um, the, the options and start to look in why a given option isn't the right idea. With my ex year six teacher hat on, I immediately think of those old SATS questions where there'd be a multiple choice question of some form in like a grammar paper, for example. And you'd look at it and think, well, I know that you don't know the right answer, but if you just look at the wrong answers, I promise you, you'll get yeah, there. Exactly. Yep. And, and I, I wonder if there's like a like an extra like hidden benefit to these um, confidence weighted multiple choice questions and the way that they make children or participants because the research has mainly been on undergraduates, um, but the way that they make participants engage with the wrong answers that might have benefits in a, in that cynical sense. The other thing to mention, obviously, about the idea of confidence weighting. I remember seeing the triangle structure and thinking, oh, okay, this is only going to work with three answers, isn't it? Because as soon as you've got four, unless you've got some kind of three-dimensional um, model, some kind of, uh, I guess it'd be a tetrahedron. Unless you've got a tetrahedron there, you can't have four connected points and pick a, the, a place in between all of them. If you represented it with a square, for example, with four answers, you can't have it exactly in the same way. So it does restrict you, I presume, to just three answers, which when, when in the few occasions where I've done multiple choice stuff, I've always gone for four and I don't know why, other than maybe I've watched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire too much. <laughs> so I, I don't know if we discussed on a really early episode, but I always find the fourth answer a lot of multiple choice questions seems to be a stretch. You know, it seems to be there because the format mm. has four. I, I quite like having three because I think a lot of content lends itself to an overgeneralization in two directions and then the right answer. And I that's what I really like about having the three. And even when I've designed four, you know, four possible answers in the past myself, I find yeah, sometimes I'm reaching for that fourth one. So uh, I think it, you know, this isn't something we're going to use all the time. We'll get into, you know, how do we get the most out of them? I think a, a nice balance, you know, is, is offered. So I wouldn't worry too much. And um, thinking about the don't know, uh, that, that point really stood out to me that um, they weren't sure where to go to next. And I think our teachers have taken that out. So we've been using them this last year as a, across, the, across the school. And I don't think they have don't know in the middle they don't give the pupils the option because i think they've decided that they know that there's a critical mass who will go for that when they want to take the path of least resistance and, and that's not what it's about it's like you say lloyd it's about getting kids to think even even further and you know more deeply about the content that they're sort of presented with yeah the way that the multiple choice triangle is set up seems to be intentionally strongly punitive of wrong answers so actually a decent strategy for doing okay would just be saying don't know every time and ending up with a, a respectable score of zero um so i wonder <laughs> that, yeah that ties into what you're saying there kira it's really interesting i was i was thinking about before we started talking about this about that actually and the idea that whole idea of metacognition that whole idea of self-reporting and gaming and strategizing i know William has talked about this in the past about children will gain things wherever they possibly can, right? And you, you, you know, you can just see those. I, well, I, you know, I can see those just six kids who go, if I go in the middle every time, or you know, like if I don't go for hard and fast answers every time, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to just skate along, getting some points. If I roughly know, you know, if they can use that strategy of going between two answers, they 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 might know. All right, it's not going to work every time. But you know kids will do that, right? You know they will do that. And I guess we're getting on to, I don't know, we, we've already diverged a little bit into deep meta stuff already. Like, but I think it's important to consider because, but 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 add it with an added caveat of what you said, Kieran, it's about sensible use, isn't it? It's about 
when you deploy these, how much you deploy these uh, is vital. Like if you're doing these all the time, they're, gonna, they're not, they're not they're, I would hazard a guess they might not work. Um, they, it's about being strategic, about being measured in how much that you do um, and create it. I go back to, I know I, I mention them all the time, but like talking about peps and talking about think, what he talks about motivation and about their ability to, you know, ego checking and things like that. That all comes into it, all into play when we come into these sorts of questions because they don't, you know, they don't want, and, and I hear Harry Fletcher, we're talking about this, how, how you, you know, what do you, what do you do to combat copying in this situation? Because that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of, that's the thing that will erode the validity of this is copying, isn't it? You know, so how do we set up culture where we reduce that routines and norms and things that we can nudge in the class to stop that happening? I think there's a, there's a whole thing, a raft of things we can do there you know, um, with our, you know, heads being down, reveal times, all these sorts of things that combat that ego thing, because that peer, as I know Chris has mentioned in previous episodes, the, that thing of, I don't, I want to fit in with the norms here, like, and I don't want to be, like, Bob's got it, that I'm going to write what Bob's got, you know, like, otherwise I'll look like an idiot in front of the class, you know, with, that's not, we want to try and combat that, and it's quite complicated, isn't it, when you, when you start, and I was trying to think about it with, I, I currently do it in my own practice with sort of the four question approach. And interestingly now, having sort of read the research around the impact being none, uh, nothing on, on, uh, on, on just assigning a confidence rating to it rather than looking at the, I guess, the relationship between answers. Uh, it might have to take a rethink on that, which is good. However, you know, it, 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 I have already had to put things in place to combat those very things. And I've, you know, on the ground level, when you look, when you, when you, when you deliver in it, like I say, it's not with undergrads. We're dealing with seven-year-old, eight-year-old kids, and there's a very, you know, there'll be a different feel to that. So I think it's worth, it's worth ex us exploring that potential. There's no others think about, about that. Thinking about ego again, like you said. This comes back to the idea of the quality of the distractors, because you're talking about how it's easy, perhaps, or easier to come up with really quality distractors if you've just got three answers to cho choose from. Well, if you've got really good quality distractors, I imagine that, that takes some of the pressure off anyway, because if a child gets something wrong, you can honestly and openly say, well, I totally understand why you went for that answer, because yeah, that actually has, that links to something else we've talked about. There is a, a misconception there, but it's totally, it's not right, but it was a sensible guess because of other things we've learned about it. And this is why, whereas if perhaps you've got four, five, et cetera, more, if you've got more answers and it's harder to come up with distractors, there's this perhaps um, tendency to say, oh, I'll just chuck in one more answer that actually in retrospect is a bit silly. And then if someone goes for that and gets it wrong, they feel a bit silly. So yeah, I guess this idea of ego, like I say, feeds back into the idea of good quality distractors in the multiple choice questions. So you guys have done a really good job of outlining them for me at least, and I hope for the audience as well. Why are confidence-weighted multiple-choice questions particularly useful in the classroom, or why might they be? I think, Chris, it's kind of something that you touched on ever so slightly earlier when you going back to uh, the idea of kids sitting there, the, the grammar paper, and being like, I know you don't know the right one, but if you work out which one it isn't, then you'll work out the actual answer for it. And so we actually want children to realise that is a, an appropriate strategy at the uh, whilst doing the SATS tests absolutely obviously we don't using these four children to get better at the SATS test but it's the thinking processes that actually happen to students by going through that process is what we want to encourage in the classroom and as I suppose said uh, earlier uh, in one bit of research only about 30 percent of um, and I think it was done on adults, actually, a piece of research, only 30% of adults actually go through that metacognitive process of thinking about which, or well, this is right, or this is wrong, because, and so what, and I think they're quite clear in that Bjork paper, they're quite clear in saying the reason we've designed these multiple choice questions is not to um, say goodbye to the standard multiple choice 
format, but actually it's just a way of encouraging children and seeing them, all right, this is actually something that I can do. So I think something that can be done kind of a you know short term, it doesn't have to, we're not certainly not saying, you know, throw all those multiple choice questions that you may have written for a, a scheme of work and you know reorganize them in this fancy triangle. But you might actually want to consider putting a you know maybe organizing maybe the second or third sets of questions that you choose to give in that format then maybe the fifth and sixth sets of questions in that format just so that you're starting to get children to think and realize that there is that metacognitive thought processing that can happen whilst they're doing standard test um, multiple choice formats and it is a good strategy to use say for long-term learning because by going through that process it's going to they're recalling information from you know, it is the de the definition of retrieval practice they are recalling information from long-term memory they're using it in their working memory and they're either deciding yeah that's not that's useful or that's not useful so i think that's the reason why we you know these can be used in the classroom um, i do think it's fair to say um the research on these is pretty thin in that there aren't very many studies that look at these and the studies that do look at them uh, focus particularly on um, you know college graduates and the studies that I've seen particularly look at um, comprehension and vocabulary so obviously we can't say that there's massive amount of evidence for these in terms of across different subjects and across different um, age groups but obviously I don't think we are saying that you know we this study you have to do it have to do it have to do it but it's certainly something that I think is worth worth investigating um, and I should say I know Kieran's had great success in bringing these to his um, teachers um, and I'd like to think at some point in this episode we'll hear uh, how his teachers got on with that but certainly again summing up we're using them to make children realize that there is that metacognitive process that they can get through to find the answer however by going through that process we're actually enhancing learning in other ways that isn't directly represented just by that particular test. Those people who have used confidence-weighted multiple choice questions in the classroom, would you say that there is any sense in which the kind the gentle jeopardy of these kinds of questions is engaging, fun? I, I'm, I'm always wary of using both of those words because it is so difficult to predict what children find engaging or fun but is there a sense that of that in using them have you found that it brings a sense of tension in a welcome sense to the process of asking questions so i think one of the things i find this year is that those children who quite often grasp things really quickly they engage with this kind of question on on a on a really sort of deep level you know certainly when they're when they're shown and we'll get into how to get the most of them soon but certainly when when they have an understanding of how to approach this kind of question they come to me and they find me and they tell me that they've worked out the link you know why has the teacher chosen the, these answers and then they've gone I, i've got i've got it you know so they're not spending their time thinking about the actual um the answer they're trying to work out why the teacher has chosen the distractors and they love that you know they like, like I say they find me in the playground or the, the next time i'm in their class they'll they'll say to me oh yeah you chose this question because or you chose this response because of that and yeah I, so I, I do think there is a level of engagement that pupils can get out of it if you are engaging with the maths on a superficial level you know if you're treading water and you're just about getting there you'll probably get less in terms of engagement and, and really really enjoying that kind of problem being posed but i do think it's an option you know I, and i've certainly experienced that this year with them um, with some students coming to mind immediately in terms of conversations we've had because they're trying to sort of get one up on their teacher you know our teacher thinks they're so clever that they, they've sent me this problem this is one of the distractors and, and now i know you know they don't necessarily use the vocabulary you know they've chosen this distractor but they know that this answer has been chosen for a reason. And it's not just three numbers that, uh, or three responses that they plucked out of thin air. I think what I can add to that potentially, I haven't, my, I have used one or two of these questions with my group uh, when I was teaching. 
have I mainly more used the a, a confidence rated, not weighted question, if, you, if, if that's what they call. Um, and to, to just speak with regards to that, Chris, I know it's not a direct comparison, but the the gentle jeopardy that you talk about, they might anecdotally from, from my experience has been that they they very much engage with it and enjoy it because it's that it's the gaming it's the gamed element that children enjoy they enjoy that they enjoy that ability to beat their score and to you know it takes careful management with them comparing again this is back to that ego thing again isn't it but you get the right culture they are encouraged and we really celebrate when people got past certain milestones of points and things um and i built some reward into that i know it's an extrinsic factor yeah it did it, for me it, le it, it leveraged it quite well in my setting in my context with my little group of six children and but I, it's it's an interesting one it's a really interesting one because i think what kieran's describing there is fascinating that it, what i've done it takes it for deeper um and the ability to get into that you still can talk about distractors and we still do talk about the links between distractors um because and and why misconceptions are there and spotting we we do do that but obviously it's it's just far easier leverage with the structure of the triangle and that setup of the scoring i get so something that i was sort of thinking about um whilst you're talking as well, Kieran, is it, how do we know when, when is the right time to reveal? So like, when is the right, how long do we hold off the correct answer before revealing? And, and again, I, I, this was something that Harry Fletcher Wood was talking about. Is like, when is the right point before the, before we reveal the correct answer? How far into the misconceptions do we go before it becomes too much? We, we had that discussion during the feedback episode, you know, and I really like Neil's ideas about perhaps waiting until the afternoon. You know, in, in terms of misconceptions, I think if they're really overly generalized, you know, you, you need to hit that head on. You know, the earlier you can address that, the less you're going to have to overwrite, you know, because as we all know, they're not going anywhere. Those misconceptions are just going to be written over again by new information. And so, you know, I think in practice, our retrieval opportunities, which is where these get utilized most, it's very much a case of the pupils take part in the, in the retrieval opportunity. And then there's either some modeling or self-marking that takes place, depending on, you know, the teacher will be surveying the class the whole way through. So they'll be able to get a picture of, is this something I need to give five minutes to? Is this something I'm going to have to put into my sequence or can, can they just mark it because actually I can see that the vast majority have sort of got this you know so I think I, I don't think we'll ever find the answer to when the right time to give feedback is um, but I totally see what you mean because if they're struggling and they're and you want them to struggle and you want them to think about it you know there, there's nothing nothing to stop you know bringing in a similar question the next day you know maybe say okay I'm not going to address this right now but a teacher in the class will get a feel for what's necessary. You know, Chris will know his kids and he'll sit and say, okay, I know that I need to address this now because if I don't, this is going to cause me issues down the line. But equally, he'll be able to say, no, I think we can do this. And I'll, I'm, going to, I'm going to use a similar question tomorrow. And, you know, so depends on the expertise of the teacher. But I also think that if you're not experienced and you're not really 100% sure about where your class need to go, you know, trial and error and thinking about what 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 happened is is the route to expertise you know so I, I i don't have a definite answer but hopefully that sort of illuminates the sort of approach we we take with this yeah i think there's too much going on between content and different subjects and how those subjects are arranged and organized to really give a, a massive definitive answer i mean for example if it was mathematics and you really really needed your children to know this one thing before you move on to the next lesson because that next lesson actually moves those children on obviously you know you want to intervene and 
disrupt that misconception as quick as possible. Whereas a subject that's not hierarchical, you will obviously, you know, there's not that sense of urgency to make sure that you correct that misconception as quickly as something that is more hierarchical. So yeah, it's too, too many uh, spinning plates on that one, I think, to give any kind of definitive answer. I don't think it's one that research is gonna answer anytime soon, or if it does, it's certainly not something you could extrapolate and generalize across other subjects outside that given study. I'm going to throw a spanner in the works and do the opposite of what you guys have said and probably say something a little bit definitive, which is, if in doubt, however, whether or not you've seen a misconception, whether it's from a, a confidence-weighted multiple-choice question, a regular multiple-choice question, or anything else, if in doubt, address that conception, misconception there and then. I think there is you know, potential avenues for teachers to explore and experiment, as, you've, as everyone has said, um, to see how you might delay feedback in order to gain um, advantages and to make this kind of thing more productive. But to my mind, I reckon if in doubt, address it head on there and then. That's how I would go about things. I can't say I'm basing that on any particular research or anything else other than just my gut feel on what I tend to do as a teacher. I think it's fair. Um, I'm thinking back to the CPD. I do a misconceptions when, when as our teachers sort of come in and are trained. And the, the, the icon I use is the radioactive icon, you know, because you, you want to obliterate them as much as possible. So I think I think it's a fair default setting. And then I think as you get more confident in your craft, you, you can experiment with stuff like that. One thing that you said, Lloyd, you know, and, and every time you talk about gaming, I always think about how I want to get more into it. And that's our next step. Because whenever, you know, so we introduced retrieval practice 2017. And one of the things, you know, and we, we talk about this lots, I didn't want to over overstretch teachers. So essentially for four years, those opportunities have been as close to no stakes rather than low stakes, you know, because the, the scoring doesn't necessarily lend itself to, you know, I would need to take something out of the workload expectations if I wanted teachers to be keeping a, a scorebook. And it's only really now after four years, I mean, you know, that we're in the position where actually let's make things a little bit more um, low, closer to low stakes. And so we're, we're thinking about pupils trying to beat themselves and how we can set it up in such a way that it's not a burden to the teacher to record this, but each pupil knows how they've done in comparison with themselves in the past. Because I think, you know, certainly when you do assessments uh, outside of the, the end of key stage two and the end of key stage four. I think you're always going to have, certainly in the, you know, my experience, a group of children who just aren't that fussed and giving them a reason to be fussed, you know, by this low stakes, beat yourself, com competing with yourself mode, I think is our next step. But, you know, like we always say, we don't change things overnight. And, and certainly this is something that as I go into year five, we're, we're really just thinking about because if I look at the, you know, the, the studies with confidence with multiple choice questions and the dots that they've got, and, you know, you've got negative 10 at the, at the two extremes. And then, like you say, you know, you, you go towards one. So you've got, which allows you for that strategy of, of choosing somewhere in the middle hedge in your bets. You know, it's how do we get that so the teachers can record those scores, can engage with that gamification, so to speak, but without having mark books you know coming out of their eyeballs you know and i know that people have used mark books really really effectively in the past you know i remember listening to bruno reddy talking on craig barton's podcast years ago and one of the things they did was they had this record but i haven't managed to you know i i think people needed to see the benefit of retrieval first before i made wholesale changes to everything and so going into year five it's only now that my focus is going to be on well, how can we make this low enough stakes that pupils are engaged? You know, so that, that it just came to mind as you were um, sort of talking there, Lloyd. I like the discussion of competition there because I know to a lot of teachers and for a lot of good reasons, the idea of competition in the classroom is anathema. And I know there are certain children who really struggle with what we usually mean by competition. But I think it's worth noting that and building on what you're saying there, Kieran, that 
competition with yourself is a whole different business in terms of ego management allowing children to say oh this was your score yesterday or this is how you did on this i wonder how this is progressing over a longer period of time and then being able to see that progress is a completely different pressure to how have you done on this compared to your peers which is yeah it can be really really destructive at points yeah it's a fascinating one it's a really interesting one and um i've probably been doing tweaking working at that for about two years now like in the class on the ground and I, I, it's, it's kind of evolved as I've gone in terms of what I've seen, how I've seen children react to it. And um, I think it's a really like nuanced and quite complicated, intricate thing actually when you start getting really into it and like about how you make it work so that like for starters, children are, can record properly. I mean, the, the way I was doing it in terms of like, like you said, so like the, the triangle sets it up, you know, take negative taking away 10 taking away whatever well actually my my children are dealing with negative numbers on a daily basis then because where they do you know what i mean where they've scored like they got two wrong and then and they're taking it taking it away and they've gone they've gone into the negative scale like so they, they then go to me uh how do i do this you know so i've had to really think about like how i support them with that like in terms of like so, so it's not it's not just cut and dry here's the game system it, you know the it, there's a lot of practicalities to consider when when you're doing it um and i think that it's, it's it's one that needs to like careful consideration but i don't think i would I, I wouldn't do it because it's complicated i think that it's worth it's worth a pursuit that's my 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 again anecdotally in my experiences it's worth a pursuit because i've seen i've seen gains from it and i've seen in my setting with my children them really engage with it and i've seen that process you know as they've, as they've moved through um working with it for me next is now how we how we how we sort of uh, use the, the the weighting more rather than, than just the rating so in the paper the the bjork and um, uh, um spark paper they talk about this importance of keeping the structure the same and not jumping between different representations uh uh, as being a strength of, of retrieval. Um, and also one of the things I picked out of there, which I thought was quite interesting is uh, if I'm right and I have observed this, was that the framing of the question, so when it was re-cued, so when they, when they initially framed the correct answer, that later down the line, that correct answer was then an incorrect answer in the re-cue. I think that's quite an interesting thing that I would like to explore with it. And that that actually prompted better retrieval, better recall when it was flipped and then the answer became uh not now i might be treading into the next question potentially here um but um, and, and how best we deploy them but i think that's I was, that's fascinating for me yeah that was, that's definitely one i've got marked down for how do we get the most out of them so it probably makes sense to jump into that that zone now you know because i think the only thing i would add to why they're good is they provide teachers with a structure upon which to base their question design, you know, because if I'm thinking about well, what do I want my new teachers thinking about, I want them thinking about common misconceptions. I want them thinking about the mathematics that they expect the pupils to know. And I want them to be thinking about how can we leverage this in such a way that we're getting the most, you know, from what we know about, he says, cognitive science. And um, so in terms of benefits, you know, not just for pupils, I think new teachers in particular find it really easy to engage with something that is so well defined. And so they can practice these behaviors. You know, like I said, one question a day. So five questions during their PPS session, they're thinking about the things that I think are important. You know, certainly in, in, in this aspect of mathematics, you know, it doesn't cover everything. But it, so I think, you know, why are they good? They allow teachers a framework within which to operate. And, you know, I think we, we get security from, from that kind of framework. Certainly I, I like it whenever I know exactly what's expected of me and what I'm doing next. But there are a few things that we've mentioned in terms of how do we get the most out of them that are, that, you know, there are links that I've been sort of holding on to because you've just said there are lights, you know, using incorrect answers as correct answers in the future. That That is absolutely something, you know, I, there's a video that I've done on YouTube and I'll link that in this. And I think I took one of the questions from the paper. It was about what's the oldest geyser in, yeah, is it 
Jellystone Park, Yellowstone Park. Je Jellystone is the Yogi Bear one, so please say Jelly. Jellystone. Yeah, we should go with Jellystone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I switched it around so that it was the tallest. So you had one question asked about the oldest, one question asked about the tallest. And then I did some examples with them, area and perimeter, because pupils will quite often confuse the two. So what is the perimeter of the shape? The area was one of the possible answers. And then the next question, what is the area of this shape? And so you've got the pupils thinking about, well, what is it that's wrong here? And having thought about it, you know, maybe two weeks earlier, why is this incorrect? They can then use that to help them work out why that it is correct in the in the future. So I think definitely using those connections. And that's only when you've got time to think about this with you know more experienced colleagues. Do you do you get this kind of thought process possible? The um, the study new you you mentioned a few times. You know the one where they they talked about how many people actually used the strategy. I think they had another doctor and surgeon situation where even when they were told about the strategy, most of them didn't change what they were doing. And so mm. the first thing I tell my well, first thing I told my teachers at the start of this year was we need to model this process with our pupils so they know that they're looking out for errors and common misconceptions. And, and that's how you get to the stage where you have pupils coming to you and talking to you about the the things that they've noticed, the, the reasons why teachers have asked questions. Because if we leave it to chance, that study would suggest that people are going to be as, are going to lack the self-awareness that we find we normally lack and not really thinking about our problem solving in the way that, you know, we hope people will. So I think clear modeling of what's expected from these questions, it's not about getting the question right, is one way to make sure we get the most out of these. Because I don't think we naturally develop this ability, you know, to see the deep structure, to see why questions have been posed by default, you know. So I think th those are the two things I, I think about when I'm trying to get the most out of them. But on a practical level, we have maybe, depending on the school, somewhere between 10 and five retrieval questions a day. Sometimes in year one, they've got three, you know. So in September, well, September to December, they'll probably have three questions and then they'll build up as they go through school towards increasingly greater number you know whatever is within a realistic capacity for the the time frame you give it and normally one of those questions will be a confidence with a multiple choice question and so every day they've got at least one opportunity to think about why things might not be correct why pupils might overgeneralize. and so that would be my advice is to do it regularly to think about what we're trying to get out of the confidence with a multiple choice question and then to get better at writing them over over time. Would I be right in thinking that this is something that while you've used it in mathematics you'd consider it as a really valuable strategy or pot a potentially valuable strategy outside of mathematics so in across the rest of the curriculum? In term five this year so six months after we introduced them we actually introduced them in maths. We actually brought them into the foundation subjects. And I think, for instance, you know, definitely grammar. There are instances where this kind of question will lend itself. You know, if you're thinking about the nuances of when a comma is, is appropriate or when a certain type of punctuation is appropriate, you know, I think it's very, it, there are a lot of similarities with mathematics. But we looked at some of the activities in Kate Jones's retrieval practice. So we were looking at, well, how, how can we get in retrieval practice too? And how can we get the, the sort of the, the gains that we've been experiencing in mathematics across the wider curriculum? And part of that was looking at, well, how can we use confidence weighted multiple choice questions as well? And so the school having, you know, trusted me in September, you know, after about a year of reading and me talking about, well, this is where I want to go to next. We did about six months of trial. Teachers, teachers love it. It wasn't one of those things where you have to make sure they were still happening. This, this stuff was happening by default. And I think that's because they enjoyed the framework that it provided. And then for the last two terms, or the last two small terms, we have extended it across curriculum. So I think you're absolutely right, Chris, because I think there are certain things it's worth remembering. And if we choose those things, then that makes history or science or geography 
much more easily accessed because piece, key pieces of knowledge are in place. There, there, obviously, there are a lot of parallels here with hinge questions. There are, like, because I would say a hinge question can sit in the confidence-weighted model. Like, for me, that's what it is. I pick up those wicked hinge questions and sit them in where they fit into this model. Because, so if we think, apply all that wonderful stuff from Harry Fletcher Wood, and then and, and then apply the, this this kind of mechanic, you're onto something there. I really, I, I think you are anyway, personally. Um, you know, to, to quote to quote Harry Fletcher Wood, he said that the hinge questions should unambiguously reveal student thinking. And I think that is a really important point, isn't it? It's about revealing thinking. And so when we when we when we view it through a lens of history, say, then this this is a lovely way, isn't it, for discussion in those subjects. You know, we talk about how how best to to deliver and to, to design tasks and to design lessons in foundation in history and geography and things. And I hear teachers, I'm sure others may hear the same sort of um, issues, particularly with the sort of focus on, on knowledge uh, that, well, we're just kind of, we just talk at them. What, what am I supposed to do? I just talk at them. But, you know, how am I supposed to design that you, you can get into these territories? Well, actually, with a really beautifully crafted hinge question that's sitting on, sitting inside a, a weighted uh, sort of um, confidence multiple choice. That's a beautiful way to start unpacking that, isn't it? it, it it's a beautiful structure to do that. Take, for example, I'm now pinching a Harry Potter Wood um, uh, example, and I'm gonna sit it on, on that. So, you know, look at it, say you're studying the industrial revolution, uh, or, you know, some, uh, you, you can have it, you can have it in picture format, you know, three pictures, which one of these pictures best represents a building from the industrial revolution, right? Like, and bang, you're in then for, to, for a conversational, a dialogic approach, yet you can smack down those, <laughs> get that toxic sign warning going and knock down those misconceptions, uh, but also address things and really, you know, hit, hit the point on the head yet the children are very much involved in that process rather than it being a, here is a building from the uh, from this period, if you see what I mean. And, and also whilst doing that, you're assessing what they already know. So I think that's another point I just wanted to make before I, uh, before I hand over, is that as, as much as they are retrieval, they don't always have to be retrieval. They're very, very versatile tool. Um, it's a very versatile tool. It can come as a part of checking for understanding right at the very beginning, because we know there's going to be children sat there who will know straight away what which building is from the Industrial Revolution because they've talked about it over the dinner table at home. And there's going to be those that don't. So like it's 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 establishing, and there may be some surprises there as well, isn't there? You know, some things that reveal that you think because we don't know them, their knowledge in the same way that we know their maths and their English, then it, it, it's a really useful tool to do that. So you've talked about the value of them in terms of assessment and in terms of embedding understanding, addressing misconceptions, etc. I guess my follow-up question personally on this is, and it's linked, of course, is what are the limits of it? Are there circumstances where you think this isn't quite going to work? A confidence-weighted multiple-choice question, or maybe not a multiple-choice question at all, is just not suitable for this bit of assessment or for this bit of um, checking for misconceptions. What, uh, what are the limits of it, do you think? So I made a list of the areas I think lend themselves most in mathematics and I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, but certain ones fit the criteria. For instance, the incorrect answer being used again. So maybe I'll, I'll screen grab that list because it's in that video on YouTube. So I think it's about professional judgment then and knowing the content and not, just like anything, not trying to shoehorn question formats or question structures in just because we we can. You know, your, your point, Lloyd, on on the assessment, I think it's really important. And just because we place it in that, in that part of the lesson, sometimes they can be preemptive assessment questions that will give a teacher an idea. So I think, I think that's, you know, we're almost, I'm almost assuming too much knowledge. You know, the question that comes to mind in terms of how revealing a question can be is, and I don't know if it's Daisy Christabula or Harry Fletcher Wood, but it's the one about the difference between the dictatorships of, 
Stalin and Hitler. And, you know, you've got three pretty gruesome similarities. And then the difference is the privatization of land. And that tells you so much about what that student understands about that period in history. And it shows you how powerful these kinds of questions can be. So I think they take a lot of thought. And as you say, Chris, one of the, one of the things we need to dedicate our thoughts to is which areas of the curriculum lend themselves best. Um, because it's not going to be everything. I think certain things lend themselves much more easily. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree with everything that's been said there. I think one way that you could maybe then take it perhaps one step further, and this doesn't quite answer your question, Chris, about its limitations, but is just getting them to explain why the other answers were wrong. And I think that, so just thinking about what you said, there, Kieran, about that. I think it's Daisy Christodoulou, that example with the um, uh, the dictators, where you think they might be exceptionally useful is perhaps in those situations in which you might have called like, you know, higher order thinking, you know, thinking about, you know, I'm sure we've all lived through some like Bloom's, Bloom's taxonomy and accelerating progress going up the, the Bloom ladder. But I think, you know, one way that you can add just that extra level of challenge into those lessons quite easily is actually you know explain why you know that Hitler was a member of the Nazi party and he wasn't a member of the, the socialist party he wasn't a, a member of the you know a, a centrist German party for example and just getting children to think harder about that could help so I think perhaps then to answer your question there where Chris is that they might actually be better if that is the kind of question or that's the kind of conversation that you might then naturally have as a result of the information that the teacher's receiving back depending on what the um, the answers are whereas they may be less useful for things like you know seven times three and that kind of quick factual knowledge that you really just want children to have yeah yeah it does i think that makes a lot of sense there's almost like a middle ground between the hyper specific there's a right answer and there are some wrong answers and you can't there isn't really a good distractor for what seven multiplied by six you know it's, it's 42 and you could make an argument that oh i often see children saying that that's 48 and can but there isn't really good distractors for that and so perhaps that's not something you'd want for a well it almost certainly isn't something you'd want for a multiple choice question of any sort and then I guess there's the other end of the spectrum where and again I'm spitballing here because I've not used confidence weighted multiple choice questions in the classroom myself but I imagine there's another end of the spectrum where you're talking about things that have a, a wider a wider a wider array of answers or perhaps can only really be answered through something that's um, either a longer form of answer or that something maybe even that's um, contextual and opinionated rather than something that has kind of quite precise answers. I guess it only obviously works with something that has a quite clear, relatively brief, correct answer and a decent set of distractors. I think it's also one, one of the other limitations to consider uh, is the age at which you roll these out. I think, you know, metacognitively speaking, it's quite, um, yeah, you know, it's quite quite challenging, I would say, in terms of like being able to, to explain and describe why things aren't right and wrong. For me, it's quite adv advanced thinking. It is, it is that high order stuff, Neil, like Neil described, definitely. So I don't know what what our might be able to feed into this. I like say I've only ever done this with my small groups. I've never haven't had whole school rollout. You've had whole school rollout on this. I don't know what uh, if I was going to perceive uh there, there to be limitations that would could be one for me that is when like the best time uh in their development across the primary phase to to, to start to, to start to roll these out i don't know what to... earliest that i've had conversations on that metacognitive level are pupils in year three now i've seen mm -hmm. pupils in year year two engage with them really well and as, the, as, as this conversation has opened, um, I'm almost coming to the, the idea that there might be a two-tier system, you know, because we talked a lot about misconceptions and, under, and thinking about why things are wrong. And then we've gone on to talk about that almost that next tier where we are revealing sort of deep 
understanding. And so I think it then comes down to the teacher thinking about, well, what is it I want to achieve? Because if, if you've got year one, let's say post Christmas, and once or twice a week, once or twice a month, you are introducing them to a format. And that's what you want to get out of it. You want them to be aware that there are potential reasons for answers being selected. I don't think, I don't think that's beyond the boundaries of what we can reasonably expect. So I think it comes down to what the school wants to be taking place. And I think, you know, the maturity in cases too lends itself to the kind of deep thought that we really want to gain from this and the deep understanding of pupil understanding. So yeah, so even just taking part in this conversation has really helped shape my thoughts on this. Because like I say, we've been using this as a tool as a school for uh, an academic year. And so that will continue to develop as we move into the next one. And over time, you know, we'll try and make it better and more, more efficient. Yeah, so I think it's been really useful definitely to chat it through. I love that idea of the, the familiarity with it, with the structures being bred early uh, so that that feels like, oh, yeah, I know this thing. We've done this. And, oh, here's a new twist. You know, it's building that familiarity, isn't it? You know, uh, at Food Square, I think that's just, that's just a really smart thing. And I'm, yeah, I'm taking that from this. <laughs> I'll screw it in my back pocket. That reminds me of um, that idea of having a set structure and then saying, we're going to use this for lots of different things because it would, you know, it allows children to not have to worry about the, the structure of the task or the structure of, the, in this case, the, the way of questioning. It reminds me of um, what Gareth Metcalf talks about with, um, well, I think it was on the episode seven of series two, where he was talking about different ways of structuring reasoning tasks and having a set structure that you're a few of them that you use across school quite um, consistently and competently means that the students are familiar with them. It reduces some of the um, difficulties of actually using them on a day-to-day basis and allows them to focus on the mathematics. And I guess this just ties into that as well. So I think all that's really left to consider is where do we go if we want to learn more? So On the Discord, I put two papers that I think everybody should start with. And obviously, if anyone's got any more, throw them in. Andrew Woods does a really good introduction. I think it was at Red Surrey online last year. I'll share a link for that. I then tried to take it on to the next step and look at what what implementation is like in the classroom. I'll share that link. Is there anything else you guys would point listeners to? in terms of learning more about confidence with multiple choice questions? They are mentioned briefly in Mark McCourt's Teaching for Mastery. So if you happen to have a copy of that lying around, for, and you should do for other reasons, um, there is a part, small section dedicated to multiple choice questions in there. And I also believe, I think the first place I actually heard them from was with uh, Craig Barton's first interview with the Bjorks, I believe. Um, and so again, for uh, you'll, if it's the first time that you listen to that podcast, you'll walk away with far more uh, important things to come away from it than just this concept of confidence weighted multiple choice, but certainly that's another source. Uh, oddly enough, TES have a good few examples. If you wanted, wanted a, a template, we wanted to see what they might look like in maths, you typed in confidence weighted multiple choice onto uh, the TES resource section. There's a few elements that come up there as well. So definitely worth checking out. I would add Craig Barton's interview with Colin Foster. They go into it actually in quite a bit until uh, they talk about hypercorrection. They talk about confidence ratings and things and the, explains a little bit of the project that he did around that. Because I know, and I'm sure if that hasn't been linked, that Colin Foster's work itself on confidence ratings in mathematics and things. He's done a whole load of work. So just just check out some of his stuff. I would. Oh, it, it's been fascinating as always. Thank you very much for being here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.